There is just one Schlitz. Yeah, yeah, nothing else comes near. When you're out of Schlitz, you're out of beer. From the makers of Schlitz Malt Liquor, the Drabblecast Theater on the Air, Norm Sherman Producer, Episode 142. Good evening, this is Norman Sherman. There are clearly a number of reasons why people of different nationalities and beliefs choose this time of year to celebrate and be with their families and loved ones. Some recognize the season as the opening of mule deer bow hunting in the state of Texas. Others celebrate Kwanzaa. But for all, this is a time of the year for new beginnings. The air is filled with good tidings and joy, and in some states, arrows. I myself celebrate Christmas Day, December 25th, because this day marks the birth of former White House Deputy Chief of Staff Carl Rove. It's important to be sensitive to the beliefs and practices of others. No doubt there are those of you out there listening right now who deny the existence of a Carl Rove. Or there are others of you who simply maintain that knowledge of the existence or non-existence of a Karl Rove is impossible. Therefore, you can neither accept nor deny him as truth. I understand, and I respect your views. And what else? Humphrey Bogart, Jesus Christ, and Jimmy Buffett were all born on Christmas Day as well, ensuring that there's something for each of us to celebrate and be merry about this Christmas season. The Grinch and the Who's, Texans and Jews, Humphrey Bogart and Jesus, here's looking at yous. Well, we here at the Drabblecast are celebrating by bringing you a very special story in two parts by John Agard called The Golden Age of Fire Escapes, done in the style of old-time radio. Bogart and Bergman would be proud. Also, this week and the following, we will feature the concluding chapters of the Drabblecast's nature documentary miniseries, In Search of the Mongolian Death Worm, which features our own beloved cryptozoologist and field reporter, Connor Chodesworth. It's been a couple of weeks, so let's recap the expedition so far. In Search of the Mongolian Death Worm, with Connor Chodesworth. Previously, on In Search of the Mongolian Deathworm. The Mongolian Deathworm. The deadliest worm in all of Mongolia. It is a subject of a number of extraordinary claims by Mongolian locals, such as the ability of the worm to spew forth sulfuric acid that, on contact, would turn anything it touches yellow. It kills humans, and its purported ability to kill at a distance by means of electric discharge through its anus. This is Nambaran, a local man from the nearby Mongolian village of Tsengao, who says Mongolian deathworms spread acid on his cat. God, translating him is such a chore. He's almost unbearably verbose. Nambaran, has anyone ever told you you tend to be a bit wordy and effusive? He looks at me, puzzled. Ancient Mongolian scrolls have mentioned that the deathworms are attracted to loud, awful noises. 
I've decided to try a new tactic. We've arranged to have you two perform directly in the center of the worm zone, effectively acting not only as worm callers, but as worm bait. It's so awful. I can't take it anymore. I pass out. I've spent three dehydrated weeks wandering throughout the roofless desert terrain. In addition, I've somehow accidentally killed Bono. We plan on arousing the worm with a hot, sexy deathworm decoy. As a mediator, we've recruited someone skilled in the subtle art of seduction. He's confident, arrogant even, about his ability to coax up mythical animals from the ground using only camel intestine doled up as a saucy deathworm lolita. From Dateline NBC's To Catch a Predator. I'm Chris Hansen. We're getting some major readings on the EVP recorder. The deathworm has got her. He's pulling her down. The line's going to break. Our mission is lost. Wait, the EVP recorder's picking something up again. The deathworm is trying to communicate. What's it saying? Hansen, why are you smiling? Well, there's something you gotta know. That's not a death worm down there, is it? That can only mean one thing. Dear God, Bono's alive. The cream-colored sands and billowing sagebrush of the Gobi Desert stretch on for nearly 1,000 miles from the arid southwest basin to the mist-shrouded mountains of the north. Though the days here are filled with temperatures relentlessly hot and unforgiving, the nights are surprisingly chilly and stunningly beautiful. The lonely shadowed hills are frequented by scattered wildlife, marbled polecats, desert asps, the occasional gray wolf. A dark canopy of bright stars stretches far beyond the moonlit horizon, gently blanketing the ancient, eternally whispering dunes as far as the eye can see. Our research team is fast asleep in their tents, recovering from another exhausting, disparaging day. Bono snores loudly to my left. He's joined our team again, after being rescued from a wormhole a few weeks ago. He's not quite the same, though, anymore. Evidently, he's become the God Emperor of Mongolia, or so he claims. He calls himself the Kwisatz Dushbagar. I thought he just wore those big silly sunglasses because he's a giant tool bag, but apparently he's blind now. A blind prophet with mysterious mental powers that allow him to bridge space and time. Powers that he gained after allegedly surviving the perverse ritual agony of sexual coupling with a death worm underground. The worm in question was not in fact a real death worm, but an exceptionally lifelike and sexy death worm decoy that we fashioned out of camel intestine and doled up with cosmetics for worm entrapment. I don't quite know how to break it to him. I lie awake by the fire, gazing upward, searching for answers in the stars. If you know what to look for, and you look hard enough, you can find all sorts of bizarre, spectacular creatures up there amongst the stars. Right over there, for example, Capricornus, the half-goat, half-fish. And there, Draco, 
the vicious bloodthirsty dragon. Everywhere you look, there's a colossal bear, there's a centaur, there's a monster crab preparing for battle, there's even a giant flying scorpion. Myths given shape and form, made real in the sky. But the Mongolian deathworm evades me even in the stars. Isn't there room enough in the heavens to fashion a deathworm for me? Aren't there stars enough in the night sky? I mean, it's a goddamn worm for Christ's sake. That's got to be the most basic, easiest to make constellation ever. It's, it's like a fucking straight line. It's up there somewhere. I know it is with acid dripping from its sparkling maw and lightning exploding from its celestial ass. I just can't see it. I just can't connect the dots. Show me a sign Cause you're everything to me And I know I will never be free From your beautiful bloated cylindrical body Buried in my dreams Mongolian deathworm Where are you hiding? Underground or in the minds of men do you drip acid from your tongue? Do you flick lightning from your bum? Do you leap from the sand every now and then and apprehend an unattended wandering Mongolian? Did you know they called me Worm Boy back in Wigglesweek Community College? Did you know I spent my whole life trying to find you? Did you know that I'm allergic to soy? Did you know I've got hemorrhoids? And just like them, I'm always right behind you. Oh, it's just another lonely night here in Mongolia. Oh, it's just another broken hearted dreamer dreaming dreams too big. Yes, it's just another life for nothing. Just another hand the universe is bluffing. Just another lonely night here in Mongolia and farmers that claim you're real and that you ate their pets and children and all their golf courses are ruined because you dig tunnels in the ninth hole putting green getting par three seems to be just a pipe dream fantasy death worm it's time to stop running so why don't you take a little chance on me I'll saddle you up like John Wayne And 
Mount your glistening membrane Ride off into the sunset segmented silhouette Clinging to your ring singing hi-ho giddy up Did you know I've got a death worm tramp stamp Covering my lower back just above my booty crack Did you know I'd give anything just to see you Sagittarius, just like Mariah Carey is. She said it best, you're never gonna shake me, cause ooh, death worm, you'll always be my baby. I just have to come to terms with it. There's nothing phenomenal at all about the world. Nothing extraordinary in the slightest happening out here in the Gobi Desert. There's nothing but boring, unremarkable worms in the ground and boring, unremarkable stars in the sky. What the? What is that? Something or someone is descending from over the hills with a flood of bright, blinding light. It's glorious, angelic, heavenly. Our entire team falls to their knees before the holy fire radiating outward. I can't see its face, but it looks as though it's preparing to deliver a message to us. It says, Tremble and fearest thou not, yet hark and behold, for saith he unto us on this very nigh that... Wait a second. I recognize those patterns of redundancy anywhere. That circumlocution, those pleonisms and meaningless excessive modifiers. Nambarin? He says, Yea, and verily it shall come to pass that unto us a sign be made known, and unto us a guide be given, blah, 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 more stuff in the passive voice. Y you know what, Nambaran? Seriously, wh why do I even bother translating for you if you're not even at least try and prune away some of those cluttered adverbs? Uh, and get that spotlight out of my face. Why the crap are you carrying that around? Frying people's retinas. God. Holy crap. What is that? It can't be. Am I seeing things? Lo, a brightly shining star, which in the west hath shone before me, connects and makes a worm with the north star, guiding us westward. Nambaran, is this what you were babbling about? Oh, shut up. I see it. 
A death worm in the stars. It's a sign. We must travel westward. Somebody wake up the god, Emperor. We've got moors and mountains to traverse. Nambaran, saddle up those Bactrian camels. We three are ditching the Orient. The following portion of our program is brought to you by Beech Nut Chewing Gum. Beech Nut, it puts the long-lasting taste and flavor of nuts in your mouth. Hey, Columbus, we can't turn back without an order from you. I'm not talking while the flavor lasts. What are you chewing, peach nut gum? We could be in for a long voyage. Well, folks, it's time for our feature story, The Golden Age of Fire Escapes by John Agard. Mr. Agard lives in Seattle with his wife and a blind dog. He also writes comics, and I was just looking at some of them and had a good chuckle myself. Head over to comfort-guide.com and take a look for yourself. They don't make dime novels like this anymore, folks. Joining me in the narration of the story, the lovely and very talented Miss Monica Vasey. Miss Vasey is a professional harpist by day and a masked vigilante by night. You can find her and hire her in either capacity at monicavasey.com. Friends, can you imagine a world without any fire escapes? Our hero in this week's story certainly could, but even more so, he could imagine a world full of fire escapes, and that allows him to have the courage to step up and make a difference. Folks, we bring you The Golden Age of Fire Escapes by John Agard. The fire marshal took office with a mask, a slideshow, and some compelling statistics. 158 incinerated at the Double Diamond in New York. Above and behind him, a screen showed the ashen remains. Over 200 dead at the Royale in Chicago, 90 by suffocation. 800 at an arena in Eau Claire, including both teams and the organist. A singed hockey stick flickered black on the forehead of his mask. All dead for the want of suitable egress. The audience for his inaugural address numbered two. One was a reporter from the City Lantern. The other was her boyfriend who'd tagged along with his camera. Uh, sir, your mask, does it symbolize anything? The reporter asked. Not as such. The mask was a gray plaster oval with slits for eyes, nose, and mouth. Does it cover a burn on your face? No, certainly not. Do you ever take it off? It's my rule not to. He shook his head. Never mind the mask. You just write this. The new fire marshal plans to see that no man burns before his time, and also to put old Guy Featherstone on the breadline. Captain Guy Featherstone, who'd been clicking the slides, murmured an amen. Featherstone had dressed for the occasion in his wide-brimmed Engine 18 leather helmet, long rubberized coat, and thick boots. He made the cavernous public safety briefing room smell of wet smoke. The reporter wouldn't let the question fall. But the mask! Please, I've promised the deputy mayor that I won't make a circus out of this office. If I'm never in your paper again, then I'll have done my job. Any more questions? No pictures! Guy growled at their porter's boyfriend. New masked fire marshal.
marshal a wild man? Accent suggests a highly civilized jungle dweller. May not even be the male of the species. The next day, the fire marshal took delivery of a crate of papers from the city archives, the building plans for every high-rise in the city. He unrolled the first one over his vast desk, took up a pencil, and started sketching. He did not stop for 72 hours. Just an hour after that, Mr. Wilson Clark, sole owner of Clark Tower, which was at 81 stories the city's tallest building, received at home a photostat of the fire marshal's plan. It proposed that twin helices of steel stairway should wrap the entire height of the building. The covering letter explained that the public safety office would sell the plans to Clark Tower for a penny. Mr. Clark laughed, boxed the messenger's ears, and threw the plans in his fireplace. The fire marshal mused publicly about chaining Clark's doors. Mr. Clark called the mayor's office, but the mayor was on safari and his deputy was laying low in a sanitarium. Mr. Clark tried to negotiate. Surely one staircase would do. The fire marshal twirled a padlock on his finger. Finally, Clark authorized construction, vowing privately he'd sell the firescape for scrap when the mayor returned. Clark sees red as costs and escapes spiral. City landmark looks like it has a hernia. Visiting ambassador jokes. Eight weeks later, with Clark Tower Escape 1, mere stories from completion, and Escape 2 just getting underway, the anticipated telegram arrived. The mayor had bagged his hartebeest and would be flying back from Rhodesia promptly. Clark's people stationed a car at the airfield. It's no use, the driver telephoned on Saturday night. With this fog, the ceiling is six inches. Even the Navy shouldn't fly tonight. He was right. A few minutes after his call, a loaded Navy patrol plane from nearby Duggan Field plowed straight into the top floor of Clark Tower. Its depth charges blew the penthouse to smithereens and its fuel at the top of the building like a Roman candle. Clark's occupants, including several terrified nuns from a hostel on the 75th floor, streamed into Escape One. The marshal's design functioned magnificently. It did not sway, even with hundreds of panicky people stamping down it all at once. Its grated stairs resisted any damp weather slipperiness, and the heavy steel roof protected people from the debris blown clear of the conflagration above. Oh boy, Captain Guy Featherstone said as he escorted the nuns to safety. Being an usher sure beats being a fireman. His jubilation was apt. It had been a lucky night. Mr. Clark's offices were in the penthouse, and this had been one of those rare weekend nights that his staff had been allowed to spend at home with their loved ones. Aside from the Navy pilot, there was only one casualty, a carpet cleaner who'd been trapped in a corner on the 18th floor, precisely where Escape 2's second umbilical would run. The fire marshal appeared at the funeral with a black diagonal stripe painted across his mask. We could have saved this man if we'd had Clark Escape 2 built, he told reporters. Declining questions, he quickly drove off to watch the Cardinal, whom the nuns had come to visit, bless Escape 1. At both occasions, Guy Featherstone, severe and stern in his dress uniform, prevented any photography. 
investigation continues. Witness claims she saw masked parachutists running from the scene. Among the Clark Tower gawkers had been the coal heiress, Mrs. Wembley Guest. Mrs. Guest lived on the 20th floor of the Ajo building, which had no such modern fire escapes. On the Monday after the crash, she called her superintendent to ask why that was. The Ajo management was sensitive about all things Clark. For the past four years, the two buildings had been stacking on extra stories in a tit-for-tat height duel. The Ajo people couldn't blink at Clark Escape One, especially with Wembley Guest calling. The fire marshal drew up escape plans for Ajo in 18 hours. The asking price was again a penny. The real estate market was desperate for a boost. Boom time overbuilding had left 18% of downtown office space vacant. Fire safety seemed like an excellent and progressive differentiator. The next day, the Public Safety Office received six requests for fire escape plans. The day after that, 15. The marshal scribbled furiously. The boom was on. City Lantern will not be outbid for unmasked fire marshal photographs and a $2,500 bonus to anyone who discovers what he does with those pennies. It wasn't quite honest work, so her probation officer wouldn't like it, but Rita took the job anyway. All she had to do was take a picture. The bidding would be in five figures, and the risk a mere trespassing charge. She'd done her homework, she knew the marshal slept alone in an apartment adjoining his office and that he kept insomniac hours. She started climbing the darkest face of the public safety building at 2.15, just after the police shift changed at the next door precinct house. She wore a brick-colored coverall, her customary working mask, and her luxurious black hair wrapped in a tall, slender turban. The fire marshal's office window was unlocked. Rita let herself in padded over a snoring Guy Featherstone and pushed open the apartment door. His place was a bachelor with a bed in one corner. She crept next to the bed and held up her camera. It was a big clumsy newsman's box, the best she'd been able to obtain on short notice. She pressed the shutter and in the millisecond flash she saw the bed was empty. The lights came on, the bathroom door opened the marshal stepped out. He wore flannel pajamas and a full-face black silk mask edged in velvet. I'll take that, he said, snapping the camera out of her hand. He pulled the film plate from it and threw it aside, and then he sat on the bed, regarding her. You're not going to call the police, she said. He shrugged. I was expecting something like this. You should be careful. She held up her vial of knockout gas. I could gas you. He touched his nose. Nope. Filter unit protects against smoke inhalation. I suppose you have something similar. I do. You sleep in your mask? I only work in mine. Oh, I'm always on duty. Care for a drink while you're here? He retrieved two bottles from the bachelor's fridge beside his bed. Root beer? 
Mm-hmm. What's that scent you're wearing? Something I cooked up from a rare Mexican cactus. It's lovely. It produces amnesia in dogs. Eh, boss! Guy Featherstone threw open the apartment door. Rita was gone like a fawn over the radiator and through the window. Where she had stood, her overturned root beer foamed. Uh, someone snuck in here, Guy blurted. Clean that up, growled the marshal. Her name is Rita Rayleigh, said the chief of police, whom Guy Featherstone had called. Old spring-heeled Rita, the international cat burglaress. Here's her mugshot. This is a mugshot? asked the marshal. She's beautiful, very glamorous. She was, especially her eyes, which the darkroom had transformed from deep brown to lustrous black. The shot was legendary in police circles. It had been taken during her only arrest when she was pinched for the botched folk diamond job. Two lady cops, very thorough ones, one an ex-nun and the other an ex-WAAC, had searched her, and yet she somehow hung onto enough toiletries so that she could fix her face and hair while they reloaded the photo plates in the mugshot camera. Ah, uh, she's a persistent one, said the chief. Hates to leave her business unfinished. He fidgeted with Rita's ruined photo plate. Yeah, she'll be back. You can bet on it. Hey, guy, go get the station house on the blower. I'll put out a bulletin. No, said the marshal. His eyes had not left the photo. The fire department will handle this. Did fire marshal fall out with Trotsky? Inside, what the restored photos could look like. The city's fire escapes spread like ivy. All the landlords were trying to upstage their neighbors. New escapes bulged over streets and crossed alleys and arced over the airspace of rival parking lots. In two mere months after the Clark crash, they had knitted into a citywide superstratum, a patchwork iron pedestrian mall, hundreds of feet up. Their style evolved apace. Solid, reassuring, iron curly cues were the classic look. The more forward-thinking favored stenciled King Tut hieroglyphics, or Roman arches. They competed on amenities, too. The Taylor Building hired off-duty cabin boys to serve as disaster directors. The Timmins Building routed its escape down to a kitty-corner speakeasy. A children's dentist installed a greased, stainless steel slide alongside his personal escape and charged a nickel a ride. He rescinded this offer when a penniless foundling, in a bid to ride for free, lit a nitrous oxide cylinder afire. It was always the layabouts and delinquents who made the greatest trouble for the marshal. Their rogue fire escape lacrosse league in particular confounded him. The game spanned the entire city and took days to complete. The marshal was terrified to consider what would happen if sixty thundering lacrossiers intersected with a real fire. He dispatched Guy Featherstone to disrupt the games, to no avail. Still, for all its warts, the system was a marvel. Sometimes, late at night, the marshal would lay down his pencil and leave his desk and walk out into the street to whatever building suited his fancy. His key 
borrowed from the mayor's office, would open any door in the city. He would let himself inside, ride the elevator to the top floor, put three sets of nylons over his mask to simulate heavy smoke, and try to escape. If he didn't make it, he wrote up a citation on the spot. He rarely wrote one. After he had escaped, he would go home and sleep for a couple hours, and his dreams would be of plush escapes from hot terror, and sometimes of Rita Rayleigh, too. Flying car bypass our city. Fire escapes encroachment threaten every man aviation. Rita Rayleigh brought a better camera the next time, a little spy job that clipped on her head like a doctor's reflector. Where she looked, it would snap. The shutter release cable ran down her sleeve and sat snug in her palm, and lighting wouldn't be an issue. She'd cooked up some night vision film in her kitchen. She stepped into the receptionist's room with knockout gas ready. She didn't need it. Guy Featherstone had been given a cot upstairs for the duration of the Rita Rayleigh situation. There was a cold draft inside. The marshal's kitchen window was open. She crept into his apartment. Someone chuckled. She spun and saw him on the fire escape. She jumped for the window, but he was already gone, twisting on a spar like a Cantonese acrobat, flinging himself across the sky to the next door escape. Rita saw a clothesline hung within easy reach. She went hand over hand after him, groaning. She landed behind him on the neighboring escape, knocking over a shift worker who was installing electric Christmas lights. Laughing, the fire marshal tic-tac-toed down a scaffold. She surfed down a stairway railing, not far behind. He jumped again and found himself on an island, a hanging piece not yet hooked into the rest of the escape grid, and he was momentarily at a loss until he saw the counterbalance cargo lift beside him. He grabbed hold of its heavy cable and kicked its brake. The cable yanked him skywards. He let go just before the pulley mashed his hands and somersaulted up into the roof of the Conkle building, stories higher. Conkle had a drain pipe running up its corner. Rita clicked on her climbing electromagnets and jumped for it. The marshal watched her climb for a moment and then dashed away again. She gained the roof just in time to see him hop down off Conkle's opposite corner onto the great nest of escapes that covered the intersection of 8th and Van Norman. It was the biggest cluster of fire escapes in downtown, where the overbuilt solidity of Conkle Escape 4 butted up against the whimsical neon minarets of the Hotel Sultanaria's Escape 2 and the gleaming steel walls of the Lee Pearl Bank's Escape 1, which was etched with dollar signs the size of dinner plates. Rita slipped into the 8th Van Norman escape cluster through a maintenance hatch, landing soundlessly on the grated steel floor. The marshal stood nearby, posed nonchalantly, the king of this place, waiting for her. She had one last surprise. She clicked her boots. The springs in her heels let go and she hurtled forward, hitting him in the side. They went down in a ball. She came up on top, reaching for his mask. She was better and close than he was. Her childhood years at the reformatorium had been instructive. Strange, he wasn't struggling. Then she felt a tugging at her wrist. She glanced down. He'd gotten his hand into her sleeve, found the shutter release. Damn it. 
she said, and collapsed onto him. Her hair, untangled from her turban, draped over him. The fire marshal knit his hands behind his head and inhaled deeply. You're wearing your special perfume. Don't worry. It only works on animals. Good. I want to remember this. He touched her mask. You don't need this. I've seen your mugshot. She touched his. You don't need yours. My camera's only a single shot. Fair enough, he said. She silently unfastened her mask and let it fall to the carpet. The marshal's heart caught. In the red glow of the exit sign above them, she was even more beautiful than her mugshot. My God, he said, and his hands moved involuntarily to his own mask. Wait. Rita said, touching his cheek. Do you hear thunder? Odd time of the year for it. Something bounced off her head and landed next to them. It was a lacrosse ball. Uh-oh, the marshal said. Hang on to me. The lacrosse game broke over them like a tide. Rita reached for her knockout gas, but a lacrossière knocked it from her hand. She spent a sweaty, bloody minute caught up in their midst until finally they forgot about the game and dispersed. Rita limped back to 8th Van Norman and looked for the marshal. He was gone without a trace. She tore the camera off her head and threw it over her shoulder. It smashed on the street 200 feet below. conclusion to this thrilling story of romance, intrigue, and public safety codes. The Golden Age of Fire Escapes, written by John Agard, produced by Norman Sherman. The following portion of our program is brought to you by Ironized Yeast Tablets. Kids love them. Here's a message of importance to millions of people who are continually pale and washed out, weak and run down. Doctors will tell you that these conditions are often caused by a deficiency of iron, the iron you need to build healthy blood, to keep your body function properly, and to keep you physically fit and mentally alert. Ironized yeast tablets provide you with a simple and effective way to get the daily iron your body requires. Get new pep, vigor and color for only a few pennies a day. Start taking Iron Eyes Yeast tomorrow. Or today, it's really up to you. Well, friends, that's our show. Travelcast Theater on the Air is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can share it freely. The show runs off the generous support of listeners like yourself. Consider throwing us some pennies in the hat if you enjoyed this program. You can find donation options off of our main page, Drabblecast.org. If you enjoyed the song featured earlier in the show, Mongolian Deathworm, Just Another Lonely Night, you can find an MP3 of it in our show notes or in the Drabblecast MP3 warehouse linked, again, off of our main page, Drabblecast.org. You may also enjoy my 10-track CD with more completely ridiculous numbers laid out in bluegrass. You can find that at normsherman.com. Well, folks, it's been a pleasure. 
safe travels to you all this week, and we'll see you in the following. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to be careful. We could gas you. She messed around with a bloke named Smokey. She loved him, though he was talking. He took her down to Chinatown, and he showed her how to kick the gong around. Hide, 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 hide.